All right, joining me now, he is the lead draft analyst here at PFF, co-host of the Tailgate Podcast with Austin Gale. It is Mike Renner. Mike, I was going to ask you if you had a chance to decompress already, but then I realized you put out a 23 mock draft, so I feel like the grind really never stops on your end. No, I have actually. It's kind of nice to just watch tape on guys with no like stakes at play. I can say whatever at this point, you know, about 2023, and no one's going to care a year from now. Whereas like three days ago, whatever I said had to be pretty damn accurate or else I was going to look like an idiot very shortly. So it's very nice, I'll say. Yeah, for sure. I mean, really, like I was telling you before we got on here, those last three days are your Super Bowl. It's every scout Super Bowl. I like seeing George Payton um, in his press conference after the draft just thinking every single scout by name because again those people people don't get to see them that much but they do all the work year round as the draft nears and as i said it is basically their super bowl that entire draft to see the draft hall that these teams end up with so let's dive into this draft and you know i just want to jump around the board but before i do that i want to start off with the quarterbacks because i feel like that's where everyone starts nowadays you know what i mean so let me start off with how do you explain what happened of all these guys where they slipped, where only Kenny Pickett goes in round one, no one goes in round two. And then finally we get Ritter to start off the quarterbacks in round three. How do you explain what happened there? I think it's two things to me. One is that so many teams got their guy this off season. There was so much movement that people found quarterbacks. There weren't many spots for them. And then two, the spots that are quote, quote available where like you would say these teams definitely need, a quarterback, whether it's, you know, Detroit, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's Seattle, um, teams that, you know, passed early on in the draft that people were pointing as options for these quarterbacks, they're waiting. You know, they're realizing that, hey, this guy that we're going to draft this year in this draft, it's not going to be our guy. Like well, the quarterback position is such, it's such a binary thing where evaluators either believe franchise guy or not franchise guy. And if they're not a franchise guy, people aren't even going to waste their time with them. So I think it's what you saw a lot of these teams do is just say, these aren't franchise guys, you know, besides obviously Pittsburgh and Kenny Pickett. So if they're not franchise guys, we're not even going to waste our time using premium picks, you know, top 50, top 75 picks on these guys and let them fall to whoever, because we're going to be a next year's quarterback class. We're going to be a next year's free agency class, whatever. We're going to find other options for quarterback. We're not going to waste any energy on this class. Interesting. Cause no, one of the stats that I don't think it's brought up a lot, but there are obviously a lot of first round quarterbacks. When it comes to second round quarterbacks, there aren't that many because if you want your quarterback, you jump back into the first round because you believe he's that special quarterback. You get that extra year in the second round. It's very rare that we get quarterbacks there. We've seen it, of course, but mm-hmm. you end up with guys like the Hackenbergs and the Geno Smiths or whatever it is. And those guys don't end up panning out. It felt like that's what we saw this year, where if he's not going in the first, we're not taking him in the second then eventually we saw them go off the board in the third and so on. Now, Ritter, Malik, Corral, and I'll probably throw in Howell as well because I know you're pretty high on him. From all those guys in the situation that they landed in, do you see any potential long-term starters there? That's the thing about this class. It's like these guys had enough talent to be long-term starters. The one place I would say I would think you know, three years from now, I bet he gets a chance to start is Malik Willis in Tennessee just because of Ryan Tannehill's contract and because of how Tennessee has fared, you know, under Tannehill, I think they're going to ultimately set their sights higher. And when contract negotiation standpoint comes up, I think it's going to be, 
hey, you know, we're not re-upping Ryan Tannehill at 40 mil a year. That's just not a path to a championship. So they're going to either try to trade him or, or do what they can to salvage some value back from that uh, to then let Malik Willis take over. So I bet he would take over. I bet Ritter starts here early, but I do think the Falcons will take a quarterback at the top of next year's draft as well because they're not going to be that good this year. And then the one kind of wild card to me is Sam Howell in Washington, because obviously our thoughts on Carson Wentz is that he's not worth what they traded for him and not worth, you know, starting for 16 games, 17 games. So it would not surprise me if at some point in time he gets the reins. Now, do I see any guys franchise? I know that's why they were 30th on the PFF board. I, I really do think there's a lot of flaws in this quarterback class. The NFL seemed to agree. Interesting. And, you know, I actually gave the Titans a quarterback. I, I don't really like doing mocks. I made one this year for PFF. I gave them Desmond Ritter at 26. And you basically aligned why because of Tannehill's no guaranteed money. He'll be 35 or 34 very soon. Um, and of course, his last performance was a pretty bad one against the Bengals. And it just felt like that coaching staff never fully committed to him. So it felt yes. like they could be a potential quarterback destination. And they get the quarterback that everyone, you know, gave the term of the most upside. And that's what they believe Malik Willis could be there in Tennessee. Why not take him? in the third round. Now, let me go into this draft a little bit more and jump around the board. And I guess we talked a lot about the Jaguars, Trayvon Walker. Everyone knows why they preferred him over Aiden Hutchinson. Let me talk about the Lions because I love what they're doing and I've been on them on the record since Brad Holmes got there. I feel like they're finally doing this thing the right way. Your outlook on the future of the Lions is where right now after this draft? Hi, uh, to me, once Aaron Rodgers retires, and obviously that's a ways down the road, but like their trajectory versus everyone else in the NFC North trajectory is pointing up. And they have by far the worst quarterback situation in the NFC North. But I, I would take them behind the Green Bay Packers right now. If I'm starting, you know, if I'm a GM or whatever, head coach wanting to take over a franchise, it would be theirs after the Packers because of the talent they've accrued, of the situation they have, very solid along both lines of scrimmage to where this team is close it truly is a quarterback away. And so if they're not in next year's quarterback class, they'll at least be a quarterback destination as we've seen, you know, quarterbacks being more and more willing to be on the move. This is a spot that, you know, for as much as the lions sort of before this, you'd never think that's a destination spot for a quarterback. And obviously Matthew Stafford's entire career was indicative of that. They might actually be someone that could attract a top QB. It just felt like when Brad Holmes, Dan Campbell were hired, they both got six-year deals and they were given from ownership, just be patient, do it the right way, build it from the ground up. And last year you go and get a Pinesul in the trenches, right? And you don't overspend the fringe the way the last regime did and you stayed patient. And now this draft, you get Aiden Hutchinson. And really the one that really was fascinating to me was the Jamison Williams pick, um, trading up from 32 to 12. I'm curious to hear from you, the draft strategy wise, what did you think of the Vikings doing that trade? Not only doing it, but doing it with a division rival. It just didn't feel like they got enough in that scenario. I agree. And now obviously our chart, the PFF chart will say, you know, they still won from a purely wins above replace perspective and what those picks on average turn out to be. But you're not, you, you win in the NFL by using the Jimmy Johnson chart for trading back to get more because that's, uh, you know, by using the chart that everyone else uses to then get even more value on top of that. So while they got minusculely more value, like 
to me, it's, they weren't really in a position where I, I would have done the same with what was on the board for them there at number 12. Now this is, was a deep class. They, they did get a number of good players. I, I'm not the whole don't trade within your division guy. I, I think that criticism is overblown. Your ultimate goal is the championship. It doesn't really, you know, obviously with the, the amount of wild cards nowadays and only one buy winning your division, isn't nearly as meaningful as maybe it was in the past. So I, I, I don't overblow that, but I do think they could have gotten more value. We saw much bigger uh, values accrued via trade back than what the Vikings were able to do on that trade. Yeah, I mean, just dropping from 12 to 32 and not getting a future one when Detroit has two of them next yeah. year, by the way, including the Rams pick, it just felt like there could have been more got in there and it wasn't. And Detroit ends up getting Jamison Williams. And then in the second round, they still had a pick and they still end up getting a pass rusher, right? Yeah. Was it pass rusher? Or Josh Pascal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lions. exactly. Yeah, right. And he's another player that I believe you were very high on, right? Yeah. So he was 46, comes off the board. He was 44th on our board. And now they have, I mean, they got options on that D line because they were edge. Wasn't even really a need for them going into this. You, you had Romeo Aquara, you had Charles Harris, you have Julian Aquara. Like you had guys who rushed the passer like, well, last year, maybe you didn't have elite guys, but you had a number of them. And then to add two more and two more guys with kind of inside outside versatility and where they win. That's just that third down package all of a sudden got a lot, a lot scarier. Yeah, and again, this is a team that I feel like they're adding a bunch of building blocks onto this roster, and eventually it's time to find the quarterback. Could it potentially be next year? I felt like when they traded for Jared Goff, it was like a two-year plan with you, mm-hmm. and then eventually we'll go and find the right quarterback once we have a lot of core pieces in place on this roster. It definitely feels like they're headed in that direction. Let me go over to the Jets draft, which I think was universally praised. My question for you is Jermaine Johnson. When a player slips in the draft, it kind of sends sirens around the building. Like, what is going on over here? What would be the reasoning behind him slipping all the way down to 26 and the Jets ending up getting their guy? See, that one's tough because I always saw him in that range. I always saw him as kind of a fringe first round kind of prospect. And so to me, it was more, it was weird that they were considering him top 10 then. And I think a lot of the top 10 hype was driven by the fact that the Jets were interested in him in that regard. And the reports after the draft, obviously being that if Garrett Wilson wasn't there at 10, Jermaine Johnson would have been picked at 10. So that was always the weird was him going that high, him slipping down boards. It was more. And I think this got tweeted by someone. I can't remember who exactly was on draft night. That was where obviously other teams saw him because they didn't see it as a massive value when you slip past the teens, past the early 20s. Uh, and teams looked elsewhere in this draft. So I, I can't really give you a great explanation because, like I said, that's where I always saw him going. Interesting. I'm curious just to get the overview on this Jets draft, though. When it comes to the receiver they got in Garrett Wilson, was that a top guy you felt like they should have gotten, or would it have been a guy like Drake London who went two picks earlier? I don't think they could have gone wrong with either of those. Drake London's obviously a different skill set than what they have in that roster, but I will say with how – you know, San Francisco runs their offense. They like interchangeable pieces. They, they like guys who can do everything um, in that offense. And so Garrett Wilson can, he can do everything. He was the most all around of the top group of wide receivers in the route tree that he could run in the role that he could fill in your offense. And so I think that's why they coveted him. And like I said, the reports were after the fact that he was their wide receiver one in this draft because, you know, playmakers with the ball in their hands and guys who could do it all 
that's Garrett Wilson. He, he is both of those things. He was the top guy in that mold in this draft class. So not surprising that he is who they covered in this draft. You know, sticking to wide receivers, the Washington Commanders had number 11, right? What did you think of them? Because they were there at 11 and they had options. They had Olave and Jameson Williams there. They dropped down to 16 only to draft a wide receiver and Dotson, who people felt like was a bit of a stretch. What did you think of that strategy? Yeah, that one, because they had to have, they had to have seen them in a similar tier what, what, with, you don't, you don't make that move to make that pick. If you don't see Chris Olave, Jameson Williams and Jahan Dotson on, you know, near equal footing, because I think they knew the teams prior to them, whether it was the Eagles, um, Ravens, you know, the teams right after, uh, the lions there. I don't think, I think they knew they weren't going wide receiver or, or maybe they, maybe they did misplay it. I, I mean, truthfully, I, I don't know exactly their strategy, but at the end of the day, I thought, I thought Dotson was in a completely different tier than Olave and Jameson Williams, like far, far down the board. If you're comparing those three wide receivers in my eyes and what he brings to the table. So that one really was probably the biggest eye opener in the first round. Well, to that point in the first round in terms of reach. Interesting. And, and I always felt like Jameson Williams was never going to be an option for them just because of the injury. And just looking at the way the commanders have been operating this offseason, where they've been so aggressive about right now, like the Carson Wentz trade, let's not wait, yeah. let's just do this right now to get the guy into the building. It felt like they weren't willing to wait. I thought Olave made a lot of sense, but no, they trade that pick. New Orleans comes up and their situation is very fascinating to me as well, because when you combine what they gave up to Philly to get that pick and then to move up to Washington spot, they gave up a lot. I believe it's five picks in total, including a future one and a future two. I guess, how do you see Olave fitting in this offense alongside Michael Thomas? Because again, that is a lot. And I guess he has to hit right away. Yeah. I think we can pretty clearly deduce that it was always for Olave. You know, everyone was like, well, oh, why are they flipping back into this year's first round? What are they doing? What's the reasoning? It was always because they wanted Olave. You don't you don't do that and then make that trade once more to go get Olave unless that was the guy you were targeting all along. So I think that was. And then obviously next best tackle available was probably their other strategy with the other first rounder because they wanted both. But I do think if it's perfectly in the offense, that's why I mean, quite obviously that they made that move is that they saw his skill set, they saw his ability to get down the football field, his ability to run a you know a pretty healthy route tree and attack at the level of football fields. They just didn't have guys that could attack was the problem. You know, Michael Thomas gets the reputation as an underneath route runner because he is limited in his speed that he brings to the table. And I was exceptional underneath, but he's going to run a different route tree than what Chris Olave is going to run. So I think what he brings to the table is just something they flat out did not have in that offense. No, definitely. And, and the rumors were true that the Saints made that trade because they want to add two impact players onto this roster right now. They believe they could compete in the NFC, a weekend NFC and in a division where they've beaten the Bucs um, four times in the regular season since Tom Brady came, adding two cheap first round talent onto this roster was always their goal. And they get Olave and Penning, Penning most likely to replace Teron Armstead. Now, I guess let me shift down a little bit more because the Patriots draft is the one that got all the attention after night one, I guess. And actually overall, the entire draft was just mind blowing to some people. I want you just to explain to me, I guess, just give me the, the 
context behind what you think could be going on over here. I mean, like someone told me the Patriots yeah. draft makes sense if they had like the Rams picks, but they didn't, they had the Patriots picks. <laughs> so like, could you just explain, I guess, just give context to what do you think is going on over there? So they lost in back-to-back off seasons, a lot of front office personnel, you know, yeah. with Nick Casario last off season. And then uh, the Raiders GM, whose name escaped me right now. Yeah, the Zieglers, the two Las Vegas. In back-to-back off-seasons, you lost a massive chunk of your, you know, not only front office personnel, but scouting staff. Like, they had to backfill a lot quickly in that front office. And it looks like they just had a misappropriation of value on this draft class. Not that they selected bad players, but they quite literally selected role players in, in a way. And they selected a project guard to replace your, you know, stud guard that you traded away. And maybe they're not going to play the exact same positions. Obviously they had kind of a rotation uh, at points during last season on their interior. And we'll see how Cole strange fits in. And he's probably a little more versatile than Shaq Mason, but like your best case scenario is he turns into Shaq Mason with that pick number 29 overall. And he drafted a one, one trick speed guy in the second round and a undersized, very undersized corner in the third round. So your three premium picks, your three top hundred picks, are just misvalued in where you got those guys. Now, maybe Marcus Jones was, that was the right sort of range for him and that's fine, but you got three guys who in their best case scenario, you can go find, you can go sign Will Fuller for like no money right now. You can go sign a starting guard for $8 million a year. You can go sign a slot cornerback that Marcus Jones profiles to for eight to $10 million a year. Like these aren't expensive positions that they're filling with these three picks. So it's, it's difficult for me to see the strategy behind this other than they just misappropriated value with the complete lack of, like I said, front office personnel there to really get a handle on this draft class. So I was wondering about that. And I went back to look at the Patriots draft call this year to strange and their draft call last year to Mac Jones to see who was in the room. Ziggler was front and center in that draft room, okay. but everyone else was still basically the same. Well, it was Matt Groh, Elliot Wolf, Matt Patricia. They're all still there. I know that Ziggler took people with him probably. I mean, not probably. I know he did. And I know Cassara took a couple people as well. I was kind of wondering, do you believe like the Patriots when it comes to just setting up a draft board with compared to all these other teams, it's just far different than everybody else. And they don't care about everyone else's opinions or the consensus and all that. I bet I would bet they don't. Yeah. I, I, it quite literally has to, you know, with what they picked because those were not, you know, Cole strange would have been surprising to go 20 picks later. 50th overall Cole strange would have been a surprise, you you know, 75th overall Taekwon Thornton would have missed like move each pick back strange to their second round Thornton to their third round. Those are still surprises at where they went. So I, I do think that they just didn't pay enough attention to outside where these guys were valued because they quite literally could have kept trading back and gotten these guys later. Yep. And Bell Belichick said after Thursday night that they could have traded back. They also felt like strange would not have been there if they kept on doing that. I guess they could possibly have some Intel, but Hmm. again, you never know. Um, I mean, this guy could end up becoming Logan Mankins for all we know, which was, I believe a questionable pick as well back then. He ended up faring out pretty fine, but then again, the consensus board, he was nowhere near the first round, more towards the back end of two, possibly three. We'll see how he does there in New England. Now, the other trade that I think, with other pick that kind of got a lot of backlash and it was a trade, it was the Cardinals 
going for Marquise Brown. Now, knowing what we know now with the Hopkins suspension on top of that, he's entering year four. He reunites with Kyler Murray and they're very close friends. There were no viable receiver options at that pick. Does the trade make some sense to you when putting all the pieces together? It does. And especially when you take into account, and now they probably didn't know this when they made the trade because it, you know, it happened before they were even on the clock. And I think it was going to happen regardless of how the board fell off, fell on Thursday night. But like, he's better than any guy that could have fallen to them. <laughs> like they went, what, six guys went in the top 18. Now, if like Chris Olave had fallen to them, you know, someone else had fallen to them in the draft, we would be looking at this and being like, yikes, that was probably not what I would have done. But of the receivers that were on the board, he's probably, I mean, quite literally will be better next year than any of those other guys. So from that perspective, you have an easy W and a guy you know can play at the NFL level. No can play with the quarterback that you have in a unique situation that you play with him in college and a quarterback that you have to appease. Now, was it more than kind of the market value that we've seen for trades this offseason? Hell yeah. Like when Absolutely. Austin actually got some inside intel, I can't exactly say where it was from, but he said before the show on Thursday night, Marquise Brown's getting traded tonight. And I'm like, do you mean tomorrow? Because I assumed it would be for a second or third round pick. Like, why would you announce the trade tonight? Right. But it was for a first rounder. So like for the Ravens make out like bandits in this, because he has, he did not have first round value to them in that offense, but I can see it from the Cardinals lens. Like, they are in a mode where Kyler Murray is going to be cheap this year, semi-cheap next year on the fifth year. Like, this is your window, if there is a window. Now, it's still not a great roster, but this is your window. So might as well go all in as you can in that. So I, I don't hate it as much as I did on first glance. Like, I still think I got a good player, but I do think that they were the only team in the NFL that would have given up anywhere close to that amount of picks for a guy like Marquise Brown. I, I would be hard-pressed to see you know, if anyone else in the league would have even given up a second for Marquise Brown at this point. Now, I was going to ask you, and I guess you kind of answered it, but should the Packers have considered doing that, consider where the wide receiver board was at? That one's tough. I, I, I don't think he fits that offense or fits what they've wanted at the receiver position. They, they've never had a guy that small in Green Bay at any point in their tenure. And, like, Deshaun Jackson became available at times throughout his career who played – with Aaron Rodgers at Cal and they never even explored it. So I, through that lens, I don't think he was even on their radar because they just don't go for tiny or, you know, undersized kind of wide receivers. So I, I think they should have, I mean, I think he would have paired well. I think he would have been a better use of whatever, you know, those two second round picks than where they right. used them on, but uh, they, they just probably wasn't even on the radar. All right. So let me ask you about the Packers. I know you were born in Wisconsin, grew up a Packers fan, what did you think about their draft where everyone is just pounding the table for a receiver? They go defense, defense, but then they trade two seconds to move up to get a receiver in the second round. I guess their draft overall, how was it? Yeah, the first round, I had no problem with skipping wide receiver at that point. Once six came off the board that early, you were reaching for whoever it was. It was going to be the value just was not there. So I didn't hate that at that point. And the two players they got are, NFL ready guys, incredible athletes who like scheme fits and needs. Like I have no issue with where they went in the first round. And truthfully, Devontae Wyatt is probably one of my favorite picks of the entire first round, the value they got there. But then the second round, I just thought with this receiving core with no building blocks, like no long-term pieces whatsoever, you know, you have, you have options maybe this year, but after this year, you could be without Lazard, without Cobb, without 
Sammy Watkins again and just be at ground zero in terms of building his receiving core. I thought two guys use those two picks in the second round. And that was kind of where the wide receiver class was shaping, where Sky Moore ended up being on the board. Jalen Tolbert ended up being on the board. I think pick 53 actually ended up being Alec Pierce himself. So yeah. like he ended up being a wide receiver. So there were going to be guys there. And I thought just go swing at two of them or maybe even one in a tight end. But using both of those to get Christian Watson to me was, I, I thought, I thought you just wanted more talent there. And now I like their fourth round pick in Romeo dubs. And I think he could actually make an impact on that team, but the, the two picks for Watts, one Watson was, that was just a little rich for my blood. Is Watson somebody who could come in right away and make an impact? Because, you know, when you're reading this stuff, it sounds like he needs some time. Yeah, that's the worry for me, is your two picks for one guy who is kind of a project, you know, who still needs to get stronger and still needs to get more physical to play in the NFL game. And truthfully, may not be more than just a vertical threat at this point. And now we saw a lot of teams lose their mind for speed in this draft. Yes. You know, guys like Tyquan Thornton, Valus Jones go way earlier than anyone is expecting just because they run low four threes. And so from that perspective of the guys that were in the four, three speedster mold. Yeah. You, he was the clear top tier of the guys that went in the second, third round. So I don't hate it from that perspective, but uh, so we can replace that that they lost to Marcus Valdez-Scantling and really did not have much speed in this receiving core. So probably that, if I had to pick a reason why they did it, is because they're just like, we're slow right now. You know, even if he is a project, we need that speed threat in our offense. All right, let me ask you some general questions here. Overall, which team, which GM had the best draft for you? The Chiefs. I don't, I don't know how I can go differently, truthfully, because this may have been the most anyone's ever followed the PFF draft board in the four <laughs> years I've been in charge of it, at least. I, for what Brett Beach did, where he four of his first five picks were quite literally the top-ranked guy on the PFF board <laughs> at, at the time. Maybe he I, has our guide. I know. I've never seen anything like it. For his four, his five-day one and two picks, only Brian Cook was not the top-ranked guy at the moment, and even he was still a value pick. Like it wasn't a reach by any means. He was right where they drafted him was right where we had him in the PFF draft guide. So it was, it was truly like how we would have come away from a draft. If we were the Kansas City Chiefs, the sky Moore pick feels like a pick that he could immediately come in and just wreak havoc in that offense. Is that something you envisioned as well for this guy? I do. And he's going to, and the thing is like, he can play the Tyreek Hill role. He's not, not going to be Tyreek Hill. No one's yeah, Tyreek Hill, obviously. but like jet sweeps, wide screens, scheme targets, yak stuff, even like getting vertical from the slot. He can do all those. Obviously not to the degree Tyree Hill can, but Juju wasn't doing those things. MVS wasn't doing those things. The receivers they had in that roster right now weren't going to be able to operate like that in that offense. Skymore can. And so that, that to me, to get a guy like that because there aren't, you know, that's a, it's a unique skill set to have an all-around with that sort of dynamism and to, for them to get that in the middle of the second round, even after a trade back, I thought was one of the best picks of the draft. Yeah. While we're on the Chiefs, I forgot about this, but this was probably one of the other questionable stuff for me, but when they traded up with new England in the first round to get McDuffie, did McDuffie not make a lot of sense to you for new England? He, so he is undersized for probably some of what New England wants to do in terms of like pressability. And obviously they kind of went way away from that with the guy they drafted in the third round. So I have no clue at that point, but he would have 
he, I mean, he's much, my opinion, he's a much better corner uh, than where they did go with Marcus Jones in the third round. Like he can play press. He's a versatile dude. He would have made sense for New England, a lot more sense than like Cole Strange could have made a much bigger impact on that team then. He obviously doesn't make that much sense, though, for the Chiefs either from that mold because they press more than anyone else. So I I'm curious to see where he ends up filling role-wise for this Chiefs defense. That'll be interesting. Okay, let's get back on track here. Besides for N'Kobe Dean, I think that's the obvious answer. Which player were you surprised to see slide and go later than expected? Yeah, so the Dean fell via injury. Bernard Raymond fell via injury. A number of guys, like it's hard. Andrew Booth fell via injury. Like it's hard to call those massive value picks when we know why they fell. And it's like, if that injury comes to roost, it's not a massive value pick at all. It's a wasted right. pick. So I can't say those guys. I think the one, and I think I, I don't want to say quarterbacks either because um, that's kind of cheating as well. I, I don't think you can really put that on to say, you know, it, with everyone falling at the quarterback position. So the one I think was, that I was sold that people were high on that did fall is one we already talked about in Jermaine Johnson. I think I thought he was going to go top 10 in this draft. I thought he could go because the personality, because the work ethic, I thought he could have gone ahead of someone like Kayvon Thibodeau in this draft. Obviously I didn't see it that way, but I was, I was buying kind of what we were sold from the media perspective. Interesting. Um, that pick was, I mean, like, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm just going back to the draft. I really never bought the four and 10 stuff. It just felt like it was coming from the local guys, which tells mm -hmm. me you're talking to the Jets people, which makes me feel like maybe they could have taken him for sure, but I just felt like it was never coming from the people that I would be trusting for the most part. And then I could have seen him obviously going top 15. I just never bought the four and 10 stuff. And while we're on this topic, the whole Debo Samuel thing at 10, I know the Jets wanted to do it. The leaked offer that came out, it came from San Francisco side, which is just basically the 49ers never engaged. And the original offer that was leaked was like the initial offer a team makes and there was no counter offer coming back. Yeah. So I just I think that thing was overblown as well. The Jets would have obviously offered more. It just never got to a point where there were actual discussions. And of course, the leaked offer that came out, I think it was just the 49ers saying, hey, this is what we had, whatever it is. But I think the Jets would have definitely given out more if there was actual engagement going on, which there was not. Anyways, going back um, to where we were, speaking of these wide receivers, every year we see wide receivers drafted in the later rounds and they pop in their rookie year. Last year was Amon Ross St. Brown. A few years ago, we had A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Terry McLaurin. This wide receiver class was loaded. Which wide receiver drafted after round one could have that type of, of an impact in his rookie year? Well, I think Sky Moore could easily like I, I would not be surprised if he goes for over a thousand yards as a rookie he's just in the perfect situation for his skill set too uh, going a little bit down the board though um and, and if sort of i guess i'll give two guys what one is if debo samuel really isn't walking through the door for san francisco i could see danny gray playing a role in that offense shortly uh, I'm not going to obviously fill Debo's shoes, but just there would be snaps there to go around because obviously Brandon, you probably fills whatever role Debo would have done in that offense with a similar skill set. And then Gray offers this vertical threat that you're going to want with Trey Lance. Like if he's the starter, you want a guy that can get deep because that is where he wins. And so Danny Gray with low four threes to me was kind of the best pure speed guy with a little bit more room for development. And I think he could be a Darnell Mooney-esque type of wide receiver and where he went and the ability he has um, for not a massive sort of guy. And the other one is, I think David Bell 
is just in a perfect situation to produce the Purdue wide receiver who goes to Cleveland where it's Amari Cooper and nobody, you know, and he's NFL ready in a lot of different ways. He's a very limited wide receiver athletically, but I think he just replaces Jarvis Landry and the role he had and a lot of those underneath targets and can do a serviceable job. So those would be the two guys that highlight that I think will produce early compared to where, you know, they were drafted. Interesting. I think Jarvis Landry, by the way, is still an option to return to Cleveland. I just love Browns fans because yesterday they cut two kickers. One of them had the number three jersey and they were like, oh, my God, David Bell can get that jersey now. These Browns fans are kind of all in on David Bell. So I see where you're coming from. You gotta from. be. I mean, when you're that <laughs> desperate for wide receivers, you'll talk yourself into anybody. All right. Um, a couple more here. Baker Mayfield kind of tied into all of this draft and there's a lot of talk about the Panthers. He was not traded. Do you see a landing spot for him right now? No, truthfully. And that's the wild thing is Panthers aren't going to flip a pick now. I think no. they'd be crazy too. or not crazy too, but like they just have so many guys there at the moment. Um, Seattle seems pretty entrenched of letting Pete kind of ride off in the sunset with this pretty rough roster. Um, and then after that, I, Houston, but like they seem comfortable letting Davis Mills try to develop. So I'm not sure there's a clean, even if he gets cut, like I'm not sure there's a starting job out there for him, which is wild to me to see. Yeah, I don't think he gets cut. I think the talks with the Panthers were real on day two of the draft. They got stuck on money about how much they should eat on it, and mm -hmm. it just didn't go anywhere. I personally thought that if they're stuck on money, at some point Baker is going to step in and say, I'll take a $2 million pay cut, just get me there. It never got to the point. It sounds like it was far, far um, of a bigger gap with those guys, and he's well, still stuck right now in Cleveland. Yeah. Can he even take a pay cut? Is that? It's not necessarily a pay cut, but it's more like – I mean, it is technically a pay cut. You could take a pay cut. Just say okay. two million, he two million off the eighteen point eight. Exactly. Okay. Just say shed off a couple of million, and I'll just go there. But it feels like the gap was far wider than that, and it just never got close. They trade back in to get Corral, and now he's there mm -hmm. with Sam Darnold. I don't know what they're waiting for. I mean, unless they're just hoping for a freak injury, which is something you shouldn't hope for. But it yeah. it's happened. It happened with Teddy. But the way these quarterbacks are protected. It's hard. I mean, like, it's hard to hope for that. You know what I mean? And training camp is coming. Um, it's coming up soon. I mean, there's no way he walks into the building with Deshaun there. I just can't see it happening. He was already requesting a trade before Deshaun got there. So yeah, people saying he, he could just walk in and just be there if he gets suspended. I don't see it happening. All right. Last one do, here, do Mike. You think, do you think, though, with yeah. Baker, do you think he could get cut? I mean, ultimately, do you think there's any any world where he gets cut? Because the one team that kind of sticks out to me that would be interesting to monitor if he gets cut is the Eagles. I think with how aggressive they were with Carson Strong, with kind of how little they are committed to actually Jalen Hurts, it would be interesting to me if he got actually cut outright, if they would be willing to bring him in for a quarterback competition. The reason why I can't is the money is guaranteed. And the fight with Carolina was about money. Okay. So if you weren't willing to do it there, why would you be willing to hit all? to eat all 18.8. You know what I mean? That's yeah. where I'm stuck at. So the only scenario where it could get to that point is if Baker creates a mess, he creates a fuss, goes crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a four situation, but he could have done that already by showing up to voluntary workouts and just being there, which would have made everything awkward, yeah. but he didn't do that. He's staying okay. away. So I don't think it gets to that point, but it's kind of Baker has some control here. He does. He yeah. could create some awkwardness there. He just hasn't gotten there yet. Andrew Barry is taking it 
I don't think the draft competition is the problem. It's the money that's the problem. And they were very far away when it came to Carolina's talks. And then they ended up going with Corral. Um, Anyways, last one here. And again, I appreciate you coming on. Um, This quarterback class, again, was deemed not so special. It does sound like next year's class has the potential to be very special. I guess looking at it now, how many first round caliber quarterbacks do you believe we have next year? Right now, I would put four guys firmly in that discussion. Like Bryce Young and CJ Stroud are going to be, I'd be floored if they're not first rounders next year, truthfully. It would have to have a mass, massive step back from one of those two not to be. Um, and then I would throw Will Levis from Kentucky. I think he showed enough in his first year, and obviously people are going to like that he played under Liam Cohen already as his offense coordinator. is now the offense coordinator for the Rams. That's going to play in his favor, you know, playing in pro style concepts. And then the last guy that I really like that hasn't gotten a ton of buzz, but I actually just saw him in Dane Brugler's first round mock as well as Tanner McKee from Stanford, because former top recruit, he had a, he went on a Mormon mission. It's only his second year back from that. And I just think his feet and sort of how he sees the game is NFL level. The offense at Stanford is kind of a joke in terms of the talent around him and whatnot. Like his, his numbers are never going to look good in that offense, but I think the NFL is really going to like that guy. Interesting. Are there any guys? Cause every year there's those guys who just pop up all the time. Like last, this past year was Kenny Pickett. Mm-hmm. We've had Baker. We've had Burrow. Are there any of those guys where you could see them jumping into the first round? Uh, Tyler Van Dyke from Miami. I know played well down the stretch for Dear King. I think in his second year of starter could vault himself in that conversation. Devin Leary from NC state had a good first full year as a starter. I think he could vault himself in that conversation. And then I would also throw Anthony Richardson from Florida. The guy is a monster athletically and like gifted wise. If he just puts it together, it, it won't take too many good games for him to really be in that first round conversation also. Interesting. The NFL record for quarterbacks in one round in the first round is six in 1983. Um, there's potential for that next year. It mm-hmm. feels like if everything falls into place. So um, got a long season ahead, but I think next year's quarterback class is already set up to be far more better than what we just had this past year in this draft. All right, Mike, I want to thank you for coming on. Everyone can follow you on Twitter. It is at PFF underscore Mike. Continue all the awesome work and maybe you can get some rest as well here as we finally get through this post-draft element of the year. Congrats, Mike, and all the success, man. For sure, Ari. Thanks for having me on. I will definitely be, I will definitely be taking that rest here soon. <laughs> Appreciate you.